This is Notable Nerds, a pro nerd report podcast where we introduce you to really cool nerds who are doing really cool things. I'm your host, Sebastian Malden, and my goal is to highlight nerdy, talented people who are killing it in the world. In each episode, we will hear their origin story, and they will impart a bit of advice and wisdom to others who might be looking to get in their industry or just learn something new. Without further ado, thank you for joining us, and now let's meet today's Notable Nerd. Ladies and gentlemen, like I said in the intro, I have a very special guest joining me today. She is an actor. She's deep in the entertainment industry. She's the head of Pink Poodle Productions and also the head of IP and strategy and acquisitions at Rangshine Entertainment. My guest today is the magnificent Marlene Sharp. So Marlene, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Much better now after that introduction. That was amazing. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you for being on the show. So for those people who may not know you, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Yes. So I'm coming at you today from Los Angeles, California, but I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. And I call myself a multi-hyphenate because that's what people like us in LA do. We uh, have many, many jobs and many job descriptions, and they're all separated by hyphens or slashes or something like that. (laughs) And uh, for most of my career, I've worked as as in some capacity in the entertainment business. I I like to joke that I've had every job there is in the entertainment business. I've been scrappy and and resourceful and always trying to learn new skills to stay employed, which is a constant, constantly uh, evolving state of being. But um, (laughs) I worked as a creative executive. Well, first started as an assistant and um, and then graduated to a glorified assistant, which would be like a creative executive or a producer. creative executive producer, executive producer, and writing. I've I've done a lot of acting too, but um, I've made a living off of mostly kids and family entertainment, a lot of animation, and a lot of adaptation of intellectual properties that come from other countries. That's really cool. So how long have you been a nerd? Well, I think I was born this way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pre- I'm pretty sure, but I I was a nerd before nerd became so specific as to refer to people who like certain fandoms and so mm-hmm. forth. Like I was a nerd in the sense that I was really good in school. I studied <laughs> real hard. That's what a nerd meant when I was born. Mm-hmm. So um so I studied real hard. I did really well in school. I always wanted to be in show business and I was kind of a weird kid. I would go to the library and check out books like how to get your kid into show business and stuff like that. And I was always planting seeds for my parents to find like, Hey, (laughs) I need an agent. And what do you say to your eight year old when you live in the deep South, when show business is not really a thing in, in that area, my parents thought it was very strange because I didn't come from a show business family, but Mm -hmm. my parents did take me to children's theater a lot starting when I was probably about two years old. So I guess that made a huge impression on me. 
And I, I, but I was never content to sit in the audience. I wanted to be on the stage and involved with the goings on. So yeah, I guess you could say my whole life is just a, um, a nerd, a big, one big nerd experience. <laughs> so I get it completely. I've, I've been like that my whole life. Um, mine, mine was mostly like fandoms of growing up, like loving, um, you know, Marvel stuff, Power Rangers, you know, all that kind of 90s kind of nerddom kind of things. But like, I I get it completely. This is like my lifestyle, you know, like <laughs> I, I can see myself doing anything else besides being a nerd. So I understand that completely. <laughs> so for all my first time guests, I have a segment called putting you on the spot. So I do usually ask a question um, of top five question based on your area of expertise. It's normally like, you know, your top five, you know, your top five movies or your top five games or even your top five, you know, like shows of all time. You're big into movies, though. So what are your top five movies of all time? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I have five because t- I have very high standards. Okay, so I might, not ha- I might not have five, but let's see my top. Well, OK, I have at least three. <laughs> I have a cl- Clueless. OK, classic. And Annie Hall. And Argo are three of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And let's see if there's any maybe runners up. Mm, like I said, very high standards. So very uh, different movies, the, by the way. Yeah, like all three yeah. of those are very different. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm trying to think. Uh, well, I guess they're all um, from the. Let's see. Annie Hall is probably the oldest of those, so that mm-hmm. would be like late mid to late seventies. But then Cl- Clueless and Argo, more recent. So yeah, I guess there aren't really a ton of common threads, except that they're all American movies. Mm-hmm. I I am an American, and I am partial to American movies. I so, uh, but yeah, I, let's go with those. Those are my top <laughs> three. <laughs> so, have you seen any movies that kind of impressed you lately? Well, I have watched a lot of streaming since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even really a big... In fact, I was kind of against streaming as a concept before the pandemic only because I love going to the movie theater and I want to support movie theaters. And so, and, and plus, I just don't like being at home. I, I can't replicate that <laughs> wonderful experience of being in the dark. I, I don't have a screening room in my modest living space. So I, I just love the theater. But then the pandemic changed everything. And so, so now most of my viewing is done on uh, my phone. Actually, mostly my phone. And also on my laptop and then also on my boyfriend's TV because he's got it all hooked up to the Internet. But um, one of the favorite things that I've seen lately, not a movie, but um, it's the HBO series The Staircase. Oh, I hear great things. Oh, but that is a whole that's a whole Pandora's box because you can't reference The Staircase the HBO interpretation of it unless Mm -hmm. you go back to the source material, which is. well, which is a murder, actually, unfortunately, a real life event, a murder. Mm-hmm. And then the documentary that was the French documentary that was made while the first trial was going on. So so the the HBO series is about the making of the documentary that happened when <laughs> the first trial happened. And there were there were were 
several um, goings on in court. Like, I guess maybe you could say like one big trial, but then like appeals and motions and like things getting overturned and this and that. So there were a lot of court proceedings after the actual conviction. So um, I I know it sounds like really tedious and boring, but I cannot tell you how riveting it is. It's the whole, I I am obsessed with the staircase. I, I, I bought books to read about the case and everything. And I love it. I also kind of feel like um, getting into that, not just, not just the staircase, but lots of other true crime documentaries and docu series. It, it makes me feel a little naughty because most of my day to day is working on very sanitized kids and family stuff. And then as a consumer, I just like to go nuts and go (laughs) like really hardcore into anything that's the opposite the total opposite of what I work on day to day. And I feel like the staircase fulfills that need for me. That makes sense. I mean, everyone needs that kind of balance, you know? <laughs> it would be weird if you just came home and you were like just so engrossed with like little kid stuff as well. I'm like, you kind of <laughs> yes. have to have a balance there. But you know, it's funny because a lot of people who are in the animation business, especially the animation business, they are obsessed with animation and it's animation 24 seven. And when I, that was never more true than when I worked at Disney, I worked at Disney for a couple of years and um, (laughs) we would have, we'd had various team building events or um, even like the Chris, there was a a Christmas party every year at Disneyland in Anaheim. Mm -hmm. Cause we, I worked in Burbank and then we would, we would do this pilgrimage down to Disneyland in Anaheim every so often. And oh my gosh, it was like the bus to summer camp when we would go because people would get all decked out in their Disney gear. And this was, these were for work meeting. We were essentially going there. It wasn't like we were going there to ride, ride. I mean, eventually Mm -hmm. we, we would have a break and then we'd ride rides and have fun, but it was a, a work thing, even, even the Christmas party. I mean, the Christmas party, people, people let their hair down, but still we'd have to work a whole day. And the Christmas party was like at night, I'm sure they still do it this way. But I mean, the, the amount of grownups decked out in Disney (laughs) gear going down to, and, and like we get inevitably stuck in traffic on the the freeway. And I just imagine like how weird we must've looked this big, (laughs) bus of people because they would rent all these buses to, some people would drive down there but i like to take the bus because i kind of like that summer camp like we were the whole vibe of it yeah yeah and um and so so especially at, at disney people are perfectly okay with disney 24 7 um and then i've i've worked with other people who have some other specific niche within animation or character driven universes and so forth where they're perfectly happy to stay in that mode all the time. But I'm not one of those people. (laughs) (laughs) Not for you, huh? No, no, there's really nothing. uh, There's nothing that I would like to do 24 seven. 
the only thing that comes close is sleeping. That's about <laughs> and, and being with my dog. I understand that completely. So let's talk about some of the animated stuff you've been a part of. Can you sure. can you give the audience a, a kind of like an IMDb of what you've actually done in, in your career? Because there's so much. Like there there's is so much. You're like a Swiss Army knife of like the <laughs> entertainment industry. That is an excellent observation, Sebastian. A Swiss Army <laughs> knife, you nailed it. Because that goes along with my saying, I've done every job there is to do in show business. And uh, so my original dream was to perform. So mm-hmm. I went to college and even graduate school in performance. And then when I finished graduate school, it was it was a wake-up call. I thought my safety job, like my practical day job would be teaching at a university that that's what I I thought I I would I had it all mapped out that I was going to be a an acting professor but unfortunately a lot of people especially in Southern California have that same dream and those people a lot of them are Oscar winners and Emmy winners Tony winners um they come from show business families none of which applied to me when I finished grad school. So I could not break into academia at all. I, 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 even today, it still perplexes me how people can get jobs, especially in Southern California. I registered with a number of temp agencies, and then I was placed at a company called Renaissance Atlantic Films, and that is or was the company of a gentleman named Frank Ward, Okay. who had been the president of Bandai America. And he was very instrumental in bringing Power Rangers from Japan to other parts of the world. And so he he had been in the toy business for a very long time. And so he was retired and he retained an exclusive consulting agreement with Bandai mm-hmm. when he retired. And so he started Renaissance Atlantic Films. But Bandai was his one and only client so he still worked for them but uh, essentially as a freelancer and so he had a small office when when I showed up there on my first day it was just him and he had a director of development and then I was the temporary assistant but then after a couple of weeks he offered me the job on a permanent basis and I ended up working for him for five years and so that was my entree into the kids business into the foreign adaptation business, um, the merchandise-driven TV series and movie Mm -hmm. business, the toy business. It was like a a real-life education in how the business really works. I I, uh, was not very smart in how I approached Frank in the beginning about wanting to act. And it's a touchy subject in Hollywood. Like, if you have an office job, you it's in your best interest if you want to keep that office job to pretend that you're not an actor. <laughs> okay. So, um, but I was so honest and dumb, I guess I was, I thought, well, you know, why wouldn't somebody want to help somebody like me? <laughs> yeah. I'm so, I'm so adorable. <laughs> why wouldn't somebody, why wouldn't someone realize that I'm supposed to be on the screen? And so, um, so I mentioned wanting to be on Power Rangers at one point, and Frank got very angry. Oh, wow. So I was like, okay, well, 
that thus began my secret life, my secret <laughs> life as an actor, sneaking off to auditions and things like that. And I, I was like, well, I'm not going to have any opportunities through these shows. Yeah. But then eventually what happened was towards the end of my tenure with him, I think he he decided that he was going to retire from show business, mm-hmm. essentially, and he would be laying me off in the near future. And so then he, uh, I guess to soften the blow, he offered to make a phone call or two to um, Saban Entertainment, which was the company that we worked with on all mm-hmm. Power Rangers, Digimon, all, all these different shows. And he he's like, hey, um, I have a, a great actress here who would love to do voiceovers. And then that was all it took. I, I was able, and he let me go off and do these voiceover things during the day. And I didn't have to pretend or hide or anything. So that, that was really great. That was a, a wonderful perk of the job. So I did a lot of voiceover. So Marlene, what was it like working with the Power Rangers? This is an iconic franchise that I grew <laughs> up with. Like, just imagine me at five years old, just running around my house singing Go Go Power Rangers. And that was pretty much my life in the early 90s. I'm so glad to hear it. That was not my life when I was working <laughs> on Power Rangers. It was it was a grind. And I, I was not working with the cast and crew on mm-hmm. set or even at the Saban Entertainment offices. So Saban was the production company that worked a lot with Bandai to take their intellectual properties that were merchandise driven. So Bandai is essentially a Japanese toy company mm-hmm. and they were one of the pioneers in making TV shows that featured play patterns associated with their toys. And that formula worked really well in Japan. And then um, when Frank became the president of Bandai America, he, I, I'm not even really sure how he met Haim Saban, but, uh, t- at some point they got together. I mean, I guess Hollywood is sort of a small, small place. And, um, and Haim also had a background in doing music for cartoons. So maybe mm-hmm. they crossed paths, s- something with cartoons and Japan and toys and such. And so, um, they, they g- formulated this idea to, to take Power Rangers specifically um, localize a few episodes and then take it around to different broadcasters, see if they could get a deal, a broadcast deal in the U S in particular, they were start, wanted to start there. And then, um, and then also put the toys in stores, um, in, out in the U S and outside Japan. And so, Mm -hmm. um, that was not an easy task. It took them seven years. It took them seven years just constant rejection. In fact, Frank used to always joke. He'd be like, he's like, we, we couldn't give this stuff away. He's like, no, <laughs> nobody wanted it. He's like, this. and to be honest, that was kind of my mentality when I started working on Power Rangers. I mean, <laughs> I had gone through a very rigorous MFA musical theater program where it was instilled in me that, you know, artfulness and award-winning and you know that was my that was my mentality I went also wanted to be Tina Fey I wanted to um I I love comedy and Mm -hmm. so I wanted to write and perform comedy and I I 
did stand up for a couple of years. And uh, so I thought, okay, you know, I'll write stand up. I can perform it. I'm like a one woman production waiting <laughs> to happen. That's what I'm going to do. Not making TV shows for little boys. Um, <clears throat> so I had a, I had a really bad attitude for a long time. I did. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't tell people that what I was working on um, because I thought it was the worst stuff ever. And, um, and then it really, gosh, I guess. So after I worked for Frank, I went to work for Disney. What was the first like voice acting gig that you got after Frank made some calls? It was probably Digimon. I did a lot of oh, Digimon episodes. That's really cool. Yeah, that's I did a really lot of cool. that. And oh, oh, and also, um, we had to take the original footage of dinosaurs and um before that, that i think that might have been something that saban passed on like they didn't see potential that much in it uh so if if so saban kind of had like a right of first refusal or something like so so bandai owned a ton of content and a ton of like toy driven properties that they would explore you know, they would do their japan thing and then it wasn't an automatic that Saban would do the work that was necessary to export it. Most of the time, that's what happened because it became a good relationship. But it wasn't like Saban and Bandai were the same company or that it was like an even though Power Rangers was a, such a big hit. But we did a lot of shows with Saban. But there was I, I think there was there was a moment where Saban didn't want to do dinosaurs. And so we were going to have to make we were going to have to take a bunch of this footage and cut a pilot and and then take the pilot to New York Toy Fair and um, make a big splash at the Bandai booth. We did a lot of that. We would make these pilots that would go in the, the display for New York Toy Fair where a lot of broadcasters would go and they would get excited about the next big thing in kids entertainment. And um, so I worked on Dinosaur. I, I, I had to do a lot of work. I, I was essentially the line producer of the dinosaurs, uh, English language version of the pilot. Um, but, uh, I was able to sneak myself in as a voice actor. I don't think Frank knew. I don't, I think I did that. Like that was something that I did on my own because he wasn't paying attention and it was just like, Oh, okay. Well, um, he's not here. And we hired a studio and like, I was, I was, it, it, it worked out. Um, That's good. <laughs> so I think that was the first thing. And uh, I don't know if he ever found out because I don't think we did. We, we put any credits in the pilot or anything like that. And then I, and then it turned out Saban changed his mind, I guess, because we did such a great pilot. Mm -hmm. Good work, me. Good work, <laughs> me for, for making a good pilot. And, uh, and then they did want to do the show and then I it didn't last very long though I gosh there's a long ago memory but I think I did some episodes when it became a show but it didn't it didn't last very long and I think the reason why a lot of times the, the reason why shows didn't last very long would be because the toys didn't sell it wasn't that people didn't like to watch the shows sometimes the shows would have excellent ratings and a huge fan base but it wouldn't be the right fan base to buy the toys. And that was the whole point of everything. And that's, that is true for a lot of the stuff that I've worked on. 
Sonic the Hedgehog being top of mind for that because um, segueing into Sonic, I, <laughs> I I came on board Sonic Boom for the second season, and the toys weren't selling, and um, they weren't selling a lot a lot of the Sonic Boom video games, and so um, so the thinking the think corporate thinking was that okay maybe. If, if we do something a little bit different for season two, we can t- turn this Titanic around and, and suddenly the merchandise will start selling. And so Sega invested a ton of money in the second season. Well, in both seasons of Sonic Boom and um, it didn't work it, it, and <laughs> yeah. it, it, it didn't work partially. Well, there are a number of reasons, but then Sonic Boom the, the, ceased to exist anymore because the consumer products weren't selling. Yeah, so. I understand. I remember growing up, I remember um, Sonic Boom. Um, I My introduction into Sonic Boom was the game, though, instead of the show. Like, the game, oh. like, I originally played the game and then kind of got drawn into the show based on that. But, yeah, I remember um, Sonic Boom. What was it like working there, you know, like, trying to get that off the ground? Oh, it was tough. It was a <laughs> grind. It was a- <laughs> That's another thing. The, the cutthroat world of kids and family entertainment is not to be believed and not to be underestimated either. It's mm-hmm. um, my belief that animation and, and also especially ki- kids and family merchandise driven entertainment, a lot of people, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people, myself included, think or thought at one point that they wanted to use that as a springboard to go on to the next big a bigger thing. plateau like, so to speak. it's tough mm-hmm. it's a grind <laughs> yes and I, also there's been men, there have been many iterations of sonic cartoons so mm-hmm. i'm guessing what you watched as a kid was probably those were they were probably the 2d cartoon at one point there were like two or three different sonic Running concurrently. Running at this, yes, Mm -hmm. running concurrently. That was like the glory days of Sonic. But when I worked on it, it was from 2015 to 2017 when we were making the um, the CG show that was on Cartoon Network, and Mm -hmm. and also I worked um, a little bit on the development of the feature film. I call myself a consultant on the feature film, (laughs) um, but really, well, first of all, if you go see the movie, you will not see my name anywhere uh because it wasn't it wasn't official but by god i worked on that movie (laughs) but Mm -hmm. um so i call myself a consultant because it was kind of like hey marlene will you help us make a um a plan a a, a rollout strategy for the the movie and the toys and like help us align with like when we need to have the art assets ready to, to send to marketing you know like lots of like strategy stuff and um i interviewed screenwriters and uh lots of other stuff but um it it was difficult because at the time i was there 2015 to 2017 sonic had been on a steady decline for a number of years and sega japan was very much trying to turn that ship around and, mm-hmm. and, you know, revive the brand. It's a very old brand. I think it's like 32, 30. Let's see. We celebrated his 25th birthday in 2016. So then 2020 was his. Yeah. So he's like 32. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he's really old. I like how you did the math. Like, like, it was, <laughs> like you remember when he was born and everything like that. <laughs> right. So, um, so 
with a brand that old, it's not surprising that it will have its ups and downs. And when I was working there, it was not good times for Sonic. It mm-hmm. was very difficult. And then uh, a lot of stuff happened, including ugly Sonic, uh, his, <laughs> his big scary teeth and whatnot, which to me is the best thing that could have happened to the brand at all because it was totally organic the way this this – the Sonic fans did some amazing trauma bonding and they <laughs> rallied together like people who couldn't agree on anything with Sonic Cannon suddenly came out of the woodwork and everyone was united against Ugly Sonic. <laughs> and um, and that changed the, the movie in the sense that Paramount and Sega, you know, the people listened to the fans because the outcry could not be ignored. And then that caused the designs to be redone. And then, you know, we now, now we sit where we are today with Sonic being the king of Hollywood. <laughs> and um, and so sadly, I'm not there anymore. But I, from what I hear, it's still it's it's different when you work behind the scenes. Like mm-hmm. when you, when you're in the audience, you see all the glory and the success and yeah. what have you. But even behind the scenes. I, I know my friends who still work there are just like they need to try to sustain it or mm-hmm. or exceed it, and so that's always a challenge because times change and tastes change, and a new crop of kids is born every year. And then how to how to sustain their interest in a brand that's so old and sometimes people associate it with their parents or whatever, and then it has like that's the stink of their parents on it. So <laughs> then the, you've got to do something new to keep keep new. People keep it and, fresh, you know. Yeah, keep it fresh. So, mm-hmm. so it's never. Uh, it, it's it seems like even even when things are going great for anybody, even a celebrity or a brand, behind the scenes there's some nail biting mm-hmm. <laughs> because how to sustain it. So I got a question for you. What was your initial reaction to Sonic, like the ugly Sonic? Did you really think he was that ugly or do you feel like, like, did it confirm something that you were thinking all along or was this just like, oh, wow, this was a huge reaction like that you weren't <laughs> expecting? Well, my re- my reaction to ugly Sonic is a work <laughs> in progress. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Well, first of all, I wasn't working at Sega when Ugly Sonic made his debut to the mm-hmm. world. I was working at Level 5, which is a, a company that is very much like Sega, except their Sonic is uh, Jabanyan of Yokai Watch. So, yeah. um, so, so instead of Sonic being my boss, uh, I had Jabanyan that I had to <laughs> answer to, and everything was about Yokai. Like Yo- Yokai, Yokai Watch, Watch was the main focus, mm-hmm. and then we had a bunch of other things that we we worked on, like the Layton series and um, Nino Kuni and Nazuma uh, Eleven, and there were bunches of other stuff. But s- certainly, Yokai Watch was like the top of the heap. We're gonna have and, to get back um, to that because I I am huge into um especially Nino Kuni like that's a wow. game that really spo- really speaks to me so I'm like we're gonna have to come back to that one but oh like, yeah Sonic, though <laughs> like what was yeah. your reaction so so I was working at level five when Ugly Sonic <laughs> happened and I had I had um, poached someone from Sega to come mm-hmm. and work with me at at level five so the two of us we're working there, a very small office. I mean, we were, and it was just a group setting. There were like 10 of us in the office. Sergio is a gentleman's name. And so Sergio and I had some chuckles that day because we were <laughs> like, oh, what? And we knew that our friend Aaron was probably 
bearing the brunt of it because he's the head of social media. Mm -hmm. And so he's the one who like this, the fans would always like, you would think that he was responsible for the whole ugly sonic debacle. Yeah. The whole, Mm -hmm. the whole company and everything. And, um, and so, um, so we're like, Oh, what Aaron must be going through today, just like getting all the anger from the fans and stuff. So, but we weren't Sega employees anymore, so we kind of chuckled, like, well, yeah. it's not our problem anymore. <laughs> like, at least we can't get in trouble for it. <laughs> at mm-hmm. least our heads won't roll. Um, but, yeah, so we thought it was funny. But then, so uh, cut to just a few weeks ago, or, okay, maybe a few months ago. Um, so I um, a, am an advisor for a school that mm-hmm. has a, an animation program for adults on the autism spectrum. And so one of the things that I do for them is I bring in a lot of guest speakers to do these virtual presentations for the students, uh, typically on Fridays. And it's mostly people who are friends of mine from the business or former coworkers. And so, um, so I've had Sega folks, I, I've, I've enlisted them to come <laughs> and do a free workshop for the, the students on a number of occasions because the students really love Sonic and Sega and mm-hmm. also my, my former uh, coworkers are great talkers. So we had, uh, so I had invited Chuck, Chuck Williams, who was mm-hmm. one of the producers of the Sonic movie and Chiaco Slowinski, who um, essentially was a, I, I, she, she wasn't cre- credited on the movie either, but mm-hmm. she worked on it with Chuck for several years and left before, the credits were created, so she didn't get a credit either. But she oh, was she was like a production manager or a producer too. And um so anyway, they have a company together now and they're adapting um they're doing a new Pac-Man movie and mm-hmm. the, a bunch of other stuff. So they're very much in the same world as me, adapting Japanese IPs for the big screen. So they came to talk to the students and uh, on Zoom. And so I told Chuck and Chiako ahead of time, I was like, if you could talk about ugly Sonic, they would, lo- <laughs> they would love that. They would love to know how that happened. And so Chuck, God bless him. He took responsibility for the whole damn thing. He's That's like, sweet. ugly Sonic was my fault. He said, because we had two sides that we had to try to appease. We had the, the new, new folks who mm-hmm. were not S- Sega employees. So this consisted of, um, these big name producers, Neil Moritz, who's famous for Fast and Furious, and Tim Miller, who's famous for Deadpool, they mm-hmm. had suddenly become involved with the movie, not the other Sega and Sonic stuff, just this movie. Mm-hmm. And um, so they are big name producers with, you know, lots of influence. Yeah. And then Paramount Studio had become involved. <clears throat> So there were those people who needed to be satisfied, but then there was Sega in Japan who owns the intellectual property and mm-hmm. knows what the fans like and how Sonic is typically portrayed and so forth. So the people, the non-Sega people wanted scary Sonic and he Chuck <laughs> brought out the, some of the concept art that I had never seen. Like I, I don't even remember the scary Sonic art that came out, but it, it was it was after I left. I had mm-hmm. seen some early designs that were questionable, but nothing <laughs> like, I mean, like they really wanted to go dark with it. Like they wanted, they wanted 
Sonic to be like a dark, a dark force, and they wanted oh, him wow. to look more like a real hedgehog. Mm-hmm. They wanted him to walk on four legs, Ugh. to have like fangs and like. I don't know. It was like, have these people not ever seen Sonic before? Mm-hmm. It was really a head scratcher. Cause I know Tim Miller and his company blur had worked on Sega games before as like mm-hmm. independent contractors. So, but I don't know, you know, artists, again, they want to put their own stamp on things and they want to bring something new to the table to attract new fans. So anyway, but Chuck was in the middle. At, he, he was technically a Sega employee cause he, he worked for Marza Animation Planet, which is a mm-hmm. Sega-owned animation studio. And um, so Chuck was kind of put in charge of making the two sides get along. And so so Chuck, so and, and then the Sega side, of course, wanted Sonic to look more like he does in the games and more cute and cuddly. And yeah. so um, so Chuck kept trying to, like, you know, he was like the ho- a hostage negotiator and he's like well what if we do this and then it, so it was a combination of the two sides is what ugly sonic was it, and and that was what chuck chuck said he's like i was just trying to get two groups of people on opposite ends of the the uh the spectrum sonic basically spectrum uh-huh. argument to come together and ugly sonic was the baby that was born <laughs> from that effort and so um so then, okay, this is so crazy. So then, so we're having this class mm-hmm. with the, the students, and somebody asks Chuck, what do you think about Ugly Sonic starring in the new Chip and Dale movie? And <laughs> Chuck was like, what? Because he had just mm-hmm. spent like 20 minutes apologizing to these students who mm-hmm. had were so enamored with Sonic, and they wanted to hear all the behind the scenes shenanigans and so chuck <laughs> chuck is like what the new shape and dale movie and it was like we did this workshop like maybe within a couple of days of when the Chippendale movie came mm-hmm. out so i didn't i hadn't seen it i think i had heard that sonic was in it but i hadn't seen it so i didn't know it was like an iteration of ugly sonic in yeah. the movie <laughs> or i didn't know any particulars and so so neither chuck nor Chiaco, nor I, who were like, you know, oh, here we are, the professionals in the room. We're going to we're going to teach you guys, you know, how to do <laughs> show business with Sonic. And the, all the students chimed in and they're like, no, he's a, it's Ugly Sonic. And he's called Ugly Sonic. And they started telling us about the Chippendale movie. And we were mm-hmm. like, all three of us were like blown away. We had no idea. So um, so then I, so then I contacted some of my friends from Sega. Mm-hmm. And got them, uh, g- got their behind the scenes, you know, to spill the tea on yeah. what happened, <laughs> what happened there, and how Ugly Sonic got in the movie. And um, they asked me to not talk about it in public because yeah, it's for sure. ongoing. It's an ongoing issue. But just this week, I posted on LinkedIn because I read in the the trades, um, the the entertainment industry trades mm-hmm. that. The director, the director of the Chippendale movie went on the record and said that the sequel to the Chippendale movie should be all about Ugly Sonic. <laughs> and, and that it was his favorite character. And he's a huge Sonic fan. And let me tell you, Disney is not a st- stakeholder in Sega or Sonic at no. all. At no. all. Um, and, um, and so, so he said 
like he gave this long interview where he said basically, um, yeah, that 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 was his. He was going to put that out there in the universe and hope that it happened, and um, and so I posted it on my LinkedIn because I'm a, I'm a maniac on LinkedIn, and <laughs> I tagged on a lot of my my former coworkers saying like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And uh, we'll we'll see what happens. But there's a lot of stuff that needs to be worked out between Disney and Sega before <laughs> that happens, and that's about all that I'll say on that subject because I, I again I'm not an employee at either one of the companies but I have been an employee at both <laughs> at both, yeah, at both yeah and I when I worked at at Disney I worked in business and legal affairs so mm-hmm. I was a legal assistant working with all the lawyers and working on copyright infringement yeah. and talent deals and all all the stuff that is kind of sounds like a snooze fest to people just hearing about it but it's very important it's a oh, very sure. important part of the the business some protecting someone's intellectual property is uh that that's how these companies survive and mm-hmm. sonic is the number one ip for sega it's the company mascot too it's yeah not for just, sure yeah so um so to be continued but yeah that that was the that moment was just hilarious when we heard from these these students who were so passionate and like <laughs> wanted to tell us the plot of the whole movie. So of course, like that night, I watched the movie and I was just, <laughs> yeah, Ugly Sonic makes the movie. I mean, he it's great. It's it's mm-hmm. like which is a, le- a life lesson. You must never discount anyone or anything because you just never know. Yeah. I think yeah. it's an inspiring story. And then here was Chuck like apologizing all over himself for disappointing fans and whatever. <laughs> and it's like, well, Chuck, I guess there's no need. No, <laughs> I guess for sure. You can, you can retract that apology now <laughs> because you might, you might've, you might've come up with the solution to two companies basically uh, working together you yeah know? Collabor- a, a collaboration for the ages a, a, mm-hmm. a huge moment in the entertainment business so yeah i just i i i like that i like that story and um it's a new a new story that i can add to my my portfolio but <laughs> just just that y- you must never discount anyone or anything because what can seem like the stupidest idea in the world at one moment in time can be the best. the best thing one, ever. One for person's you. trash is another person's treasure. Oh, and that's for sure. one of my favorite say, sayings. For sure. So let's um pivot and talk about level five. You brought up some <laughs> really cool IPs. Um, Yokai Watch, uh, Nino Kumi. Both of those, uh, you know, I haven't played Yokai Watch, but I I very much put in like 80 hours into Nino Kumi. Wow. It was, yeah, yeah, like wow. I really dove deep into that game. I really love the atmosphere, the color production. Did you know Studio Ghibli? did the animation and um as far as i know that's the only video game animation that they've ever done like that's so beautiful a, a strict policy at mm-hmm. um studio ghibli you know they mm-hmm. are very much artists over oh, there yeah. miyazaki and so forth and they have very high standards and just part of their business plan is to not do video games <laughs> but i think the relationship between 
Hino-san, who Mm -hmm. is the founder and head of Level 5, like Hino-san is very much respected as an artiste in Japan. And I think that superseded anything, any, any mandates that Studio Ghibli had. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they wanted to work together and Nino Kuni is what came from it. I don't think that they worked, I don't think Studio Ghibli worked on the, the second mm-hmm. edition I don't think they worked on the of sequel. the game, uh-uh. but it's the same art style. So mm-hmm. it was different. And I, I wasn't involved in the game animation for Nino Kuni, but what I was involved in, and sadly it, di- it didn't happen, but I was trying to put together a series. So I think I thought Nino Kuni could have been Arcane before, or, you know, it was this was a couple of years before mm-hmm. Arcane, but like that's what I had in mind for Nino. That's Kuni. really cool. And I was trying to put that together. I did a, a whole because um, that's that's really the the area where I work is the intersection of the consumer products and the screen entertainment that mm-hmm. that goes out into the world. So um, so at level five, I was the head of production um, in the Los Angeles office, which meant that everything, all the ideas came from Hino-san in Japan. And usually that, that's where everything started and um, a, a world would be created and built out, but then they, it would land in our office to westernize or uh, make it more of a global intellectual uh, property or to um, localize it for different markets. But anyway, with Nino Kuni, um, yeah, when um, level, so level five closed its LA office in 2019. And mm-hmm. um, that was the end of my job there, which was so sad. But I was deep into the development of, of Nino Kuni. I, I created a Bible, a, a pitch Bible to, mm-hmm. to send to various stake potential stakeholders like streaming platforms and again like what what arcane was that's what we intended for nino kuni and that would have um, been amazing like i can't even imagine how cool that would have been i know but um it didn't happen i guess it still could happen but really level five has scaled back its business outside japan quite considerably big way so you were talking about like your experience with yokai watch and you know at level five like you've done sonic the hedgehog yokai watch you've also you know been a part of like nino kuni like and power rangers i'm like what was your favorite (laughs) ip that you've worked with wow um well i do have a soft spot for snack world which is level five IP mm-hmm. and it's it, under the radar for sure. It it was a big hit in Japan and I know there were high hopes for it outside of Japan. It's a little weird. So, um, <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it, it, first of all, it's, it's CG. So mm-hmm. a lot of people who, who are, are fans of level five and, and fans of Japanese content in general, they're fans of, anime and that style that 2d style and the people with the big eyes and you know all the tropes that go along with it and snack world does not look like that at all it's cg um the characters very much look they're they're very cutesy but Mm -hmm. they're they're naughty they're um (laughs) so it's, it's like an irreverent take on fairy tales and myths and legends and so there are all these characters that are thrown together in this environment where um 
they they don't get along and mm -hmm. uh that that you know uh, like for example peter pan is renamed peter pancake and he's got like a dad bod and <laughs> he, he's a kind of has a drinking problem and uh, you know that, that he's got a lot of issues and then he crosses paths with a uh, with a, a j-pop style mm -hmm. singing group made of little red riding hoods um and it's it's very it, it seems very non sequitur in a lot mm -hmm. of ways um and uh i think it was and it's just the the universe is huge it's like so many fairy tale characters and then these unique spins on them and um just even tracking all the characters was so difficult but i didn't <laughs> like snack world at first when i started working on it and it was so excuse me challenging to work on it was just it, there were a lot of parts we had to we had to localize a lot of music mm -hmm. and that's always challenging because in japan songwriters composers and lyricists have a lot of power so they they will get creative control over their songs if somebody if somebody's going to do a cover of their song or if mm -hmm. it's if it's going to be done in another language or whatever and so so we had to have the, and this is a very musical property snack mm -hmm. world is and so um we had to get translations of the songs and then we had to have uh, musicians who would massage the music and the lyrics to mm -hmm. make them make sense. Because the raw translations are usually just a bunch of gobbledygook. <laughs> and, uh, it's, and so you need an extra layer of adaptation, in, at least one extra layer. Then, then the adaptation has to be reverse translated into Japanese for the original composers and lyricists to look at and approve. And wow. then if they reject it, then it comes back to me and my team to do more work on it. And then we were doing that in French and English simultaneously. And the composers that we were working with were not happy with us most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> we had so many struggles just with the songs. And then, then we were also adapting stuff to go into the toys because there mm -hmm. were talking toys. So... So and then everything had to be aligned like we couldn't have we we had to try try to make synergy among all of the different iterations as much as we could and yeah, so for it sure. was just it was it was so much work and then then I I I grew to love snack world it was like my little problem child <laughs> I gave it so much attention and um and then I lost my job before it ever went to Crunchyroll. Oh. So that mm -hmm. was sad. I, I was glad when it finally went on Crunchyroll. Yeah. Luckily my name's in the credits. So that that's didn't really change. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That's that's good. And I got a producer credit on that. Mm -hmm. So that that was awesome. But um yeah, that's one of my my favorites. It was just like this little this little orphan this little uh, you know <laughs> problem child essentially. So I have a soft spot for it. One more question before you go, though. Like, mm -hmm. I've, I've loved having you on the show and everything like that. I know, like, it's been a long one, and I know you probably got other things to do. But I got to ask you, though, you've been a Comic-Con panelist for San Diego Comic-Con, something mm -hmm. that, like, most nerds think as the mecca of nerddom. <laughs> like, that is where, like, all the major stuff gets announced, all the Marvel stuff gets announced. I'm like, what was it like to be a panelist on Comic-Con? 
Oh, it was it was really fun, and um, it was. Uh, it was, it was, it was fun. I, 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 I'm not going to lie. It was, a, it was a great experience, but I will, uh, I will burst the bubble a little bit in saying that I was not in a hall age panel. So yeah. hall age. And I think that's what most fans think of when people think of the, the angels singing for comic con, <laughs> they think of these hall age panels where people have camped out for days and mm-hmm. it's just like a mass of humanity outside of the convention center and then like standing room only and then some for these the, the those halls that can hold like thousands of people. Yeah. That was not me. I was not <laughs> on one of those panels, <laughs> but I I was on a panel that was small but mighty and um it was it was really the the panel that I did was um called world builders mm-hmm. and they're um one of the instrumental folks from halo the halo franchise mm-hmm. was on the panel with me and there was somebody from lucasfilm uh, maybe two people um it, it was a bunch of heavy hitters in in the nerd. i was about to say do you realize yeah. you just named like two things that are iconic and nerdum? like we yeah, don't necessarily yeah. need hall h like we have it, halo and you have lucas films like yeah it already, was a it was, like, a, it was a, a quite a distinguished panel mm-hmm. but not we didn't have like chris hemsworth on our panel <laughs> we we didn't you know we didn't have paul rudd we didn't mm-hmm. we had me and we had other executives or or, or creative types people who are behind the scenes and and like we didn't have like john favreau either we didn't have any of the buzzworthy directors either but we we had people who were decision makers at these huge companies but they're not like the recognizable faces that you Mm -hmm. typically see um and so um so it was great i loved it and um i i actually i was invited back this past summer to be mm-hmm. a, a, a panelist again on a similar similar kind of panel, but um, for a variety of reasons, I wasn't able to do it, and I was so disappointed because it's it's always so much fun and the the just the energy of the fans yeah. and everything. Have you have you been? To no, some? no, that's a dream. That is oh. like a bucket list thing. I've been to local comic cons here in the Dallas area, but mm-hmm. I've never actually got to go to the big bang of comic cons in San Diego. So yeah, that's kind of a bucket list kind of thing for me. It It's a wonderful experience. And really like I, I've been to all different kinds of cons and festivals and trade mm-hmm. shows and whatnot, but San Diego comic con is more like Mardi Gras to me oh, than, yeah, for sure. than anything else because it's taken over the entirety of downtown San Diego mm-hmm. and it's tons of people in costume, much like Mardi Gras. Yeah. And um, it's just like, it's more than just the, the exhibit floor and more than just the panels. It's mm-hmm. like taken over every business, every business in downtown San Diego has some, thing to contribute oh yeah whether whether it's like drink specials or you know a costume contest or like it it, it's so um so much a part of the culture there now and um just the energy and 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 it's all kinds of fandom of course it's very closely associated with the the big names marvel dc yeah yeah. it's a celebration of all things nerdy though so it's mm -hmm. not just the not just marvel and dc so Yes. There's a lot of things to do there and a lot of things yes. to see. And you you're right, like the gas the gas lamp district is like 
it goes off for that time of year. Like I, I've been both after and before Comic-Con. I've never actually got to go during that week. So mm. yeah, but even then I'm like, you can almost still see the, like the, either the preparation for Comic-Con or like the after effects of it. And you, you just still feel that electricity kind of in there. So I, oh, I really yeah. want to go. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's um it, again, more like Mardi Gras than any other celebration of film or, or uh, consumer products that I've ever mm-hmm. been to. It's just more like a, a big party. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So before we go, we got to talk about Pink Poodle Productions. Can you give the audience a rundown of that? It's basically me and my dog. <laughs> <laughs> and my dog is a Bichon Poodle mix. Mm-hmm. So she's the chairwoman of the board, the mascot. <laughs> The, everything that I don't do, she she serves those purposes. She's my muse. She's the s- subject of some of the original stuff that I've done. Mm-hmm. But essentially, I, I started Pink Poodle Productions as a glorified resume. <laughs> uh, a, a lot of places when you apply for jobs, they want, want to know about your website or your portfolio or your demo reel. So, so I started it back when I was in Sega days just just to have a website to showcase stuff that I worked on. Mm-hmm. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, when I lost my job at the end of 2019, I didn't have another job waiting for me. So I just decided Pink Poodle Productions was going to be my employer. <laughs> and uh, I, I own the domain name, therefore I can make those decisions. And so so I was fortunate to have some consulting projects to roll mm-hmm. into while I didn't have a, a full-time job at another company at that time. Um, I did have some consulting projects, so it just became part of what I was doing for pink poodle productions. And, um, actually now I am a full-time employee for Rainshine, mm-hmm. uh, Rainshine entertainment, but I, I don't, I, I, I don't think I'll ever abandon pink poodle productions because that's something I created and, yeah. and I, and it's, it's a place for me to, besides social media, a place for me to showcase things that I've worked on and, mm-hmm. um, you know, projects that I've done, whether it's like pro bono consulting or, you know, uh, um, like spec projects and, and short films that I put in short film festivals and things like that. just anything creative I can, I can make it a part of pink boodle productions. And that's like my own brand. Cause I love pink and I love poodles. <laughs> so <laughs> that's it. That was all the thinking that went into the, that name, two things okay. that I love coming together. So <laughs> sometimes that's the best recipe, you know, just the simplicity of two things coming together. Yeah. And I wanted to think pleasant thoughts when I talked about my work it doesn't always turn out that way. Uh, I am a complainer. <laughs> so I thought, well, with my business, at least the name of the business will make me smile because it'll make me think of two things that I love. <laughs> I get that completely. I get that completely. Marlene, thank you so much for being on the show today. Like, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed hearing these stories and learning more about you because, like, you're such a cool person. And I wanted to say, like, the industry, but there's so many industries I'd be talking about. You're so <laughs> like, you're such a cool person in all facets of nerddom. So thank you again for being on the Pro Nerd Report. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for being a connoisseur of nerds and, <laughs> and, a, and a, a curator of nerd experiences because it, it really comes through in your interview style and everything. So 
Thank you for a, a wonderful interview. <laughs> Thank you. Where can the good people find you? Well, there's my website, pinkpoodleproductions.com. Mm-hmm. And I am a maniac on LinkedIn. So if you want to connect with me, go to LinkedIn. I also manage the Women in Animation LinkedIn group, which is very active. We've got almost 20,000 members. Wow, so that's really I've cool. been the moderator from the very beginning. So I, I try not to moderate with a heavy hand, but mm-hmm. uh, but I, I'm there a lot during the day just because it's it's part of my world. And um, and then I'm I'm on also on Facebook and Instagram, all the, the usual suspects. So I'm 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 findable. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Marlene, thank you so much for being on the show and I will catch you on the next one. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Sebastian. Take <laughs> all care. Right, bye. Bye-bye. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thank you so much for listening to the episode. I just want to remind you that you can get Notable Nerds every single Thursday, and we're going to bring you the dopest guest in the nerd community. If you want to suggest a nerd that you think should be on the show or discuss topics of an episode with others, join us on the Pro Nerd Report Facebook group. Once you're in, go ahead and provide some feedback. The link to join us in the Pro Nerd Report free Facebook group is in the show notes. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope to catch you every single Thursday. Holla at your boy later. Peace.